Have you ever wanted to be more than you are? Are you worried your full potential isn't enough? Ever wonder if finding that out is worth your soul? Best Event Ever is back for 2018 with DC's 1995 event, Underworld Unleashed. Several blogs and podcasts are coming together to examine the effects these questions have on the heroes and villains of the DC Universe. Join Justice's First Dawn, Comic Reviews by Walt, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Pop Culture Palace, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and Between the Pages, among others, as they examine the effects these questions have on characters like Ted Knight, Blue Devil, Sentinel, The Martian Manhunter, and Darkseid. Follow them all using hashtag BestEventEver2018 and hashtag UnderworldReUnleashed across social media all throughout October. Sweeney, and in this episode of ITG, I'm thrilled to be participating in the latest installment of what's become a super fun annual tradition, the hashtag best event ever, where several game comics bloggers and podcasters come together and revisit one of the great, or not so great, crossover events from DC Comics' glorious past. The first best event ever pierced through the heart of 1993's Bloodlines. Last year, we shed a little light on Eclipso, the darkness within. And this year, this year we're digging deep into Underworld Unleashed, the DC event of 1995. So for my part, I'll be claiming a couple little pieces of this story, which overall gave prominent panel time to the villains of the DC Universe and featured their struggle with the temptation offered by Big Bad Neron, who was introduced in the very first chapter of the event, Underworld Unleashed Number 1, cover dated November 1995. The havoc wreaked by DC's raddest and baddest ran through a three-issue core miniseries and over 40 tie-in issues from throughout the line. In this episode, I'll be recapping and commenting on two chapters of the overall story, those found in Starman, number 13, and Showcase 95, number 12. Uh, But before getting into the nitty-gritty, I wanted to encourage you to have a look or listen to the contributions from this year's other best-ever participants, including Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill podcast, which is going to get the whole thing kicked off with their look at Underworld Unleashed number one, Professor Allen's relatively geeky podcast network, Karen of the Between the Pages blog, she'll be posting for this one on the Retroist, Justice Trek the podcast will be playing along, 
as will comic reviews by Walt, Justice's First Dawn, Al Sedano on his podcast Resurrections and Adam Warlock Thanos podcast, and Pop Culture Palace Presents. And Diablo Frank will have some coverage on the Idlehead of Diablo and the Diana Prince Wonder Woman shows. All of these fine features will be linked on the blog post accompanying this episode. You can find that at itgblogcast.blogspot.com. And you can always follow the social media hashtags Best Event Ever. And I'll also be using one called Underworld Reunleashed on both Twitter and Instagram. Before we get into the Starman issue, maybe I should just uh, bring us up to speed on the story thus far. A demon or alien, some otherworldly being named Neron, has it in for the human race, superheroes in particular. Neron is a proven master manipulator, having duped supervillains and more common criminals into doing his bidding, as introduced in the first issue of Underworld Unleashed. The most visible manifestation of this was the breakout of dozens of supervillains from Bell Rev Prison due to a number of circumstances Neron himself put into motion. His motives at the outset are unclear, uh, but he gathers a horde of supervillains, those recent Bell Rev graduates, but also dozens more that were currently at large, with the aid of a number of magic candles which somehow found their way into the villain's possession. You light the candle, and you're transported to Neron's base of operations, a vast, dark, craggy, cave-like space befitting a lord of the Underrealm, which is what Neron passes himself off as. But he doesn't look the part of the typical comic book tempting demon. He's more machismo than Mephisto, with his lion's mane of blonde hair, rippling muscles under a skin-tight gray outfit accented with shiny green body armor and cape. He's buff, he's tough, and with those who don't take him seriously, like the world-beater Mongol, he's rough. Early on, Mongol challenges Neron's power, but soon learns that that was a mistake. After delivering a brutal physical pounding, Neron simply absorbs Mongol's essence through his nostrils, something like snorting a couple of lines of intergalactic despot. To every other villain present, Neron extends an offer. Increased power, modified power, more controllable power, in exchange, of course, for their soul. But also Neron wants a bit of their time. Some of those gathered refuse, some accept, and those that do are asked by Neron simply to raise a little hell. And that brings us to the tie-ins, as that's where the little hell is raised. One interesting side effect of the bad guys on the loose aspect of this event was that we got to see some unusual matchups between the heroes and villains of the DCU. Underworld Unleashed had a little Axe of Vengeance thing going on, if you're at all familiar with the that similarly-themed Marvel Comics event from around 1989, where battles like Daredevil vs. Ultron took place, and Spider-Man vs. Pacepot Pete, sorry, the Trapster. DC case in point, this issue of Starman features confrontation between Ted Knight, the Golden Age hero, 
and original holder of the Starman name, and infrequent Batman foe, Dr. Phosphorus. Starman, the series, is, in my opinion, one of the best that DC has ever put out. Uh, It spun out of 1994's event Zero Hour, and told the tale of, in part, Jack Knight, son of Ted, and his superheroic growing pains as issue by issue, Jack accepts the legacy of his father, his own legacy, and becomes less and less the reluctant hero. Starman almost immediately became a series for DC history nerds, the way writer-creator James Robinson and series regular artist Tony Harris and Peter Snabierg celebrated the idea of heroic legacy, but also a sizable chunk of DC's publishing past. But they did this not at the expense of telling a modern, engaging comic book story. Starman is a classic case of a book honoring the past while simultaneously moving forward with the way it not only informed the Starman legacy from originator Ted Knight through his son and beyond, like thousands of years beyond, but also with the way it was able to touch on characters from DC's Western tradition, war comics, and sci-fi heroes with great parts for Adam Strange and Space Cabbie, of all characters. As I said earlier, Starman is the tale of Jack Knight, but only in part. It is his story, but really all of these disparate elements in Starman are in service to flesh out the story of Opal City, the heart of the series, and Robinson's contribution to DC's great tradition of fictional locales. I'd put Opal City right up there, at least on the comics page, with the likes of Gotham City and Metropolis. And Opal City is the setting of Starman number 13, cover dated November 1995. The story is called Sins of the Child, Part 2, Ted's Day. This Underworld Unleashed tie-in occurs in the middle of a five-part story about a rampant crime spree in Opal City perpetrated by Jack's arch-enemy, The Mist. The credits here include James Robinson Writer, Tony Harris Penciler, Wade Von Grawbadger Inker, Greg Wright does the colors, Bill Oakley the letters, and it's edited by Chuck Kim and Archie Goodwin. The cover is painted by Tony Harris. It shows a wary Ted Knight in his favored 40s style of dress, pleated pants, tie, vest, and fedora, armed with a Buck Rogers-looking sci-fi pistol below a large image of the floating head, the flaming head, of his opponent in this issue, Dr. Phosphorus. This is a good example of the way its Underworld Unleashed participation changes the look of a title's cover. The regular Starman logo is turned on its ear, knocked out of the way by the Underworld Unleashed trade dress, which is a logo across the top edge of the cover, borrowed from the core miniseries. This cover treatment was used pretty much without exception for all the tie-ins. The story subtitle, Ted's Day, refers to the fact that this takes place over the same amount of time as the previous issue of the series, but events unfold here from Ted's perspective rather than Jack's. The story opens with Ted and Jack on the steps of an Opal City courthouse in which Jack had just been exonerated of a murder charge pressed earlier in the series to engage in some typical Starman-type dialogue about Ted's favorite visual artist, happens to be Jackson Pollock, but names like Wyeth and Edward Hopper 
are dropped here too. I often imagine these occasional tangents about old Hollywood, various collectibles, and art movements throughout the series, that they were straight transcriptions of either conversations James Robinson had recently had, or they were internal dialogues maybe rattling around in his head, but they were always fun to read when these sorts of tangents came up. Jack and Ted make their way back to Ted's observatory home slash workshop, and continue to shoot the breeze and some pool till they realize that a couple of their associates, a reformed Golden Age JSA adversary Solomon Grundy and Mikhail Thomas, an alien starman that the, they've been looking after recently, are missing from the property. In the current climate of the mist's crime wave, the knights suspect foul play, and Jack leaps into action. He grabs his starman weapon of choice, the Art Deco-esque cosmic staff, souped-up version of the cosmic rod his father had used decades earlier. He takes off into the previous issue to search for Grundy and Mikau. Ted performs his own search around the city after Jack misses his promised two o'clock check-in phone call, navigating through the crime spree and a cacophony of sirens and alarms, ending up at police headquarters to speak with one of the O'Dares, a family of siblings, all working for OCPD in some capacity. A little worn out after this, Ted, in pretty much his get-up from the cover, looking as if he stepped out of some 40s film noir, returns to his observatory, but when he switches off his car radio, there's a sudden change in the artwork here. Suddenly the color is drained from the panels, so it almost looks like we're watching a 40s film noir. It's an interesting design choice. It's a good one, in my opinion, as it intensifies the only thing allowed color over the next dozen pages. The blazing hot, molten orange skin of the killer who's been hiding out in the observatory in wait for Ted. It's Dr. Phosphorus. So, old bat foe Phosphorus was once Dr. Alex Sartorius. Uh, at one point, he was accidentally bombarded with radiated sand, and this turned him into a creature with superheated, transparent skin that would burn and poison with radiation everything he touched, including his clothes. He fought Batman a few times in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I first came across him in a horrifying panel sequence from an issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. At a point in that series where dozens of supervillains were attacking dozens more superheroes, Phosphorus, he leaps at a passing Hawkman who instantly combusts at Phosphorus's touch, while Hawkman's godson Northwind screams, Good Lord! Dr. Phosphorus is killing Hawkman! Though I never read any of Phosphorus's original appearances, and uh, even though Hawkman eventually got better, these panels made a Pretty big impression on a certain nine-year-old comic reader. More recently, Dr. Phosphorus has obviously made a deal with Neron. His skin is still semi-transparent. You get a nice look at his arm bones as he fires a bolt of energy at Ted Knight in a couple of panels. But he's able to control this power better, at least to the point where he can wear clothes. His taste in wardrobe is very similar to Ted Knight's high-waisted pleated pants, baggy suit jacket, wingtip shoes, and a hand grenade necktie. 
His skin, though, his skin is like magma on the page. The drab grays of his clothing and the background in this colorless world created by Harris von Graubadger and Greg Wright really heightens and brightens the color of Phosphorus's toxic skin. Very effective effect. Phosphorus explains to Ted Knight that he's been hired by the Mist to kill him as part of her war on Opal City. But he confirms that he'd been intercepted by Neron, who'd given him his increased power. Phosphorus proceeds to chase Ted through his lab, the older man tossing beakers and test tubes behind him. When the pair stumble through to a workshop, Ted buys a minute by pushing a chain-suspended engine that knocks Phosphorus off his feet. At this point, the villain's body temperature activates the sprinkler system. This was part of Ted Knight's on-the-fly plan. Uh, But the downpour from the sprinkler has no effect. Phosphorus eerily wades through the steam, seemingly unstoppable. But Ted's little failure here has given him an idea. Suddenly the phone rings, and a very confident Phosphorus is compelled to pick it up. It's Jack phoning home about eight hours too late, but he's got a good excuse. He's got his own problems. Asterisk, see last issue. Phosphorus coolly tells Jack that he's too late. His father is dead. And then immediately hangs up. I wouldn't count those chickens quite yet, Doctor. The good doctor, sorry, the bad doctor, catches up to Ted Knight in what looks like his Starman trophy room, which is full of mannequins dressed in various Starman costumes from throughout the years, shelves of gimmicks from old enemies, and that cool pistol from the cover. Ted grabs it, whirls, and fires off a couple of shots. But Phosphorus gets a hand on him, leaving behind a smoking burn wound on his arm. One of the ray blasts actually connects and forces Phosphorus back, and as both men are reeling, Ted thinks to himself about the promise he made recently to Jack to develop cosmic energy for the good of man after retiring from the hero biz. The generator he constructed for such energy being right here in the room, and the special coolant needed to house that generator. Now Phosphorus must be standing right where Ted wants him, because with a quick yank of a nearby chain, a huge mass of heavy-looking liquid coolant comes pouring down over a shocked Dr. Phosphorus. And a quick swat across the back of the head with a metal rod does the villain in. The only color in the next panel is Ted's bright orange arm wound at the spot where Phosphorus touched him. And that may hold some significance in the series going forward. I'd I'd keep an eye on that wound, Ted. Completely exhausted, Ted slumps into a chair. And just as an electronic switch ushered in this black and white world with Phosphorus's pursuit of Ted, when Ted switches on the TV, color suddenly floods back in, closing out the noirish confrontation with his attempted killer. TV news catches Ted's attention. The mist is still on the loose. There are explosions and more killings throughout the city. And the on-air personality voices the very question Ted now asks himself. Where's Jack? Where's Starman? As this particular chapter of Underworld Unleashed comes to a close. I've always loved this issue of Starman. It's a 
successful, entertaining single issue of a comic book series, functions well as a chapter in one of said series' major story arcs, and I think it succeeds as a contribution to the Underworld Unleashed event. There are some DC crossovers where participation in the various tie-in issues would seem to grind various storylines to a halt, where those creative teams would have to shoehorn in details from the crossover. Uh, But that didn't happen here. Ted's battle with Phosphorus felt like a natural part of the story James Robinson was trying to tell. The Mist's crime wave and the havoc it was wreaking on Opal City. And I get the sense from the dozen-ish plus Underworld tie-ins that I own that was a common positive trait in this event's tie-ins. Just about any superhero comic you pick up is very likely to have a battle between a hero and a villain. Why not a villain that made a deal with the devil? Seems like a very low-risk way to participate in a line-wide money grab. But I think James Robinson and crew did a particularly good job with this issue. And with the couple other annual crossover events that they participated in, with Starman being a standout tie-in to both 1997's Genesis and 98's DC 1 Million. Starman 13 is definitely worth checking out if you haven't already. Uh, I generally choose to cover uncollected comics here at ITG, comics that haven't been reprinted very much, if at all. This issue has been represented in a couple of Starman trade paperback collections and Omnibuy, but I was happy to waive my rule, my guideline about collected comics, and this little BEE event allowed me to recap an issue from one of my absolute favorite series. Okay, next up, we'll check out how Starman cast member The Shade participates, or doesn't, in Underworld Unleashed in his story from Showcase 95, number 12. Goodbye, love. Goodbye, love. Seemed to fade Came back like a slow voice On a wave of fade That weren't no DJ That was hazy cosmic jive There's a star man Waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us But he thinks he'd blow Alright, Showcase 95 was the third Of four year-long anthology Maxi series DC put out In the mid-90s, which would showcase characters and the work of a variety of, in some cases, underexposed comics prose. But in other cases, it allowed writers to flesh out some ideas that they may just not have had the opportunity to fit in in the regular series in which they were working. And that's what's going on here with the James Robinson-written Shade story in the middle of this issue of Showcase 95. The Shade, part-time supervillain and Starman supporting cast member, shares this issue with a Stuart Moore, Phil Jimenez, Supergirl story, and a Chris Claremont, Alan Davis, Sovereign 7 story. And I always forget about this obscure bit of Alan Davis work. He's one of my favorite artists. But I just really have no interest in those Sovereign 7 characters, and I don't think I've even ever read this particular story. 
It does have a nice and uncommon Alan Davis dark side illustration, though, so there is that. Uh, plus, this issue has an outstanding Tom Grummet-drawn Supergirl cover, which does not surrender to the Underworld Unleashed trade dress. The Shade 10 pagers by the team of writer James Robinson, artist Wade Von Grawbadger. Odd here to see his pencil work, though he was the mainstay inker on Starman at this time. Colorist Debbie McKeever, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, and editor Chuck Kim. Story opens with the Shade, longtime foe of the Flash, or Flashes, both Jay Garrick and Barry Allen, and the Justice Society. On a very personal quest to find a killer who's been operating in his precious Opal City, long a run of the mill type supervillain who would occasionally pop up, the Shade found. Uh, really new life under James Robinson and in Starman. Robinson's shade was something of a dandy, an Oscar Wildean wit, and quite possibly immortal having been around since at least the mid-19th century it was revealed in the Starman series. And the shade turned to crime, it's implied, primarily as a form of amusement in times of his long life where he found himself with just nothing else better to do. Cursed or blessed with the ability to manipulate shadows, using them either as a physical weapon or even a means of transportation, the Shade would occasionally plague the Flash or the JSA, but always retire between schemes to the place he calls home, Opal City, a place of whom he'd become, at one point, a fierce protector. It's almost like the Shade was living two lives, and I don't want to go any more into that for the benefit of those who might not have read the Starman series. Uh, but in a way, it's this complicated life what's brought him here to this story's setting, Central City. Apparently, the wealthy Albert Bernelli was the last man to have hired the killer who the Shade's after. And we find that the Shade may have gotten a little carried away with his questioning Bernelli is dead, suspended from his vaulted ceiling by the Shade's shadowy goo. And when Bernelli's paid guards intervene, we get to see a little more of the Shade's nasty side as demonic shadow forms rip the men apart. It's this particular moment that Neron has chosen to visit the Shade to offer him the same deal he'd given dozens other supervillains. Increased power... But significantly, Neron doesn't go so far as to require the Shade's soul in return. And it's also perhaps significant that the Shade wasn't summoned to Neron, like most other villains who'd received those magic candles. Over the course of the story, told through the tie-ins, there were a few special individuals that Neron tried to recruit more personally, and the Shade is either lucky enough or unlucky enough to be one of those. Neron, dressed here not in his armor getup, but in a lime green business suit and darker overcoat, goes a little further into his motives here than he had in Underworld Unleashed number one. His desire, he says, is to remake the world in his image, removing from it what he sees as a flaw, the idea of good. By providing villains with greater power for a price, he hopes to tip the scales in favor of evil and just wipe good away from the planet forever. But whatever Neron's selling, the Shade, he 
just ain't buying. What could he possibly benefit from Neron's gift? The shade asks. Can his shadow be made blacker? Could he possibly be made more wealthy than he already is? He's already immortal. Basically, the shade says, thanks, but no thanks. The shade's nonchalance drives Neron apoplectic. You dare refuse me? Neron tells the shade that he'll rue this day. And in one of my favorite lines from any comic book ever, dropping his best Oscar Wildean comeback, the shade responds, Rue? If I had a rue for every time someone said that, I'd own Paris. And now remember way back at the beginning of this episode, I described how Neron treated those he found indignant. He beat the Everlovin snot out of Mongol, beat him to death, really. But here, Neron takes a different route. He promises, as he fades away, one day, the Shade will face his worst nightmare. Shade doesn't think too much of this threat. And he leaves the Bernelli mansion full of dead bodies, only a staff cook left alive to hear the Shade's last bit of wit. He reassures the cringing cook of his safety. He'd only killed one before. And if only a jury tasted that chef's salmon mousse, no court in the land would have convicted him. The end. So again, we have here James Robinson making the most of his tie-in opportunity. It may be by an inch or so moves forward the Shade's personal quest that had been hinted at over in the Starman title. But Neron's threat of dark days ahead for the Shade... It may seem like some throwaway threat from some stymied bully fading away with his tail between his legs. But for those, especially for those that have read the entire Starman epic, one discovers that there weren't many throwaway lines issued from the pen of James Robinson around this time. Seeming insignificant plot points had a way of rearing their sometimes ugly head months, years down the line. So while I'm not implying that Neron is directly involved in Opal City's future disaster, oop, spoilers, I'd say he's at least read James Robinson's notes. So while I might not consider the story essential to Underworld Unleashed, it's at the very least an entertaining read, and probably of more importance to the story of Opal City that Robinson and company were telling in their own little corner of the DCU. The artwork here by Wade Von Graubadger is okay. His style, especially his inking style, assures that the look of this story is brought in line with what you might find over in Starman at the time. Uh, And I think it's worth your time and money to track this issue down. Like the Starman tie-in, you can find the story reprinted in the series of Starman Omnibus from a few years ago. Uh, but of course you won't find the Supergirl story there, nor Alan Davis's Dark Side. So I'd recommend finding the single issue. I will put up a few images from each of these stories on my blog, itgblogcast.blogspot.com. And again, there you will also find links to other best event ever Underworld Reunleashed content. So be sure to check those out. I'll be back with at least one more contribution to this team-up. I'll be going through issue number two of the Underworld Unleashed core miniseries in much this same manner. 
So if you liked what you heard here, I invite you to look for that wherever you found this episode. I want to thank you so much for listening, and if you get that unmarked package containing an odd green candle, I'd suggest just tossing it. Okay, till next episode, take care. Shadow in fight, my shadow in